It is a tradition at Grace Point Church at the beginning of each new year to review what we're about. As I mentioned during the announcement time, which about 50% of you missed, um, if you were planning on being a part of our church family to this, and you're thinking about coming to our 101 class, and normally we have that every uh, potluck Sabbath, so first Sabbath of every month, um, we normally will have that 101 class. Today, however, this is the 101 class, okay? So if you're thinking about being a part of our church family and you're just saying, I'm not sure I want to join this bunch of crazy people. I'm not sure where they're headed. That's a reasonable question. We're hoping to give you a reasonable answer in the next few minutes. And so as we talk about our goals, our objectives, who we are, what we're about as a church today, as we look at 2016 and uh, look at what makes it reasonable to be a part of this family and to choose to grab hold of the rope and help pull in the direction we're asking you to pull, it seems reasonable to come and point out what direction we're headed. And so I first want to start by, uh, by telling you that there are a few things that we repeat around here with regularity. Oh, by the way, first Sabbath of every month, bring your name tag. I have mine. So today, your responsibility is a verbal name tag. Anybody you meet, anybody you greet, anybody you say, say hello to today, start with, my name is Walt, in my case, and then speak to them. Okay? So here are a couple things we regularly repeat. God is trying to get you into heaven, not keep you out. God is trying to get you into heaven, not keep you out. That's, that's one of those foundational ideas at Grace Point that we talk about. God is trying to get you into heaven, not keep you out. Now, you may think, oh, that's obvious, but it's not so obvious. Most of us live as if God is trying to keep us out of heaven. Most of us live trying to appease or please God in some manner that will force him to let us in. We're trying to blow down the gates of heaven, and God is saying, no, 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 the gates are open. I'm trying to get you in. Quit avoiding me. I'm actually trying to get you home, trying to get you into heaven, not keep you out. Number two, the life of a follower is the life of abundance. That Jesus came to the earth, and he said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. His his mission statement, his reason for existence, his reason for coming was so that our life would be more abundant. The life of a follower is more blessed and more abundant than the life of a person who refuses to follow. The life of a follower is the abundant life and that we live in the abundance of a God who has everything. The thou, the, the, when the Bible says the cattle on a thousand hills are his, remember when the Bible uses the word thousand, it's like you saying a bazillion. Okay, it's 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 an an expansive number. It's trying to really expand your thinking. It's the cattle on a thousand hills are his. It would be like you saying there's a million ants on my in my kitchen. No, there aren't. You didn't count them. You just said there were a lot of them. There were just so many. You they were innumerable. So when the Bible says the cattle on a thousand hills are God's, just say the cattle on every hill, the cattle on all the hills, the cattle on an immense number of hills, the cattle on a million hills are God's. We serve an abundant God and he has an abundant behavior. 
He is constantly pouring out blessings on people who don't even want blessings. Right? He's constantly pouring on, out blessings on every single one of us, none of which really deserves blessings. We serve a God of abundance, and the life of a follower is more abundant than the life of those who are not following. So then that begs the question, why not tell somebody? Because if the life of a follower is more abundant, if we really believe that, then you're not asking anybody to do anything. You're giving someone something. Did you see how it changes things? God is trying to get you into heaven. Changes the way you think about God. The life is more abundant when you follow God. Changes the way you think about your life. Because we tend to think that's a restrictive thing to follow God. And I'm telling you, it's not. It's an abundance thing when you put on the God follower hat. Number three. Every, everyone and every institution is driven by some purpose. Now, we haven't brought this up in a long time. I haven't shared it with you. It's one of the core things that we set out in this church back whew, two decades ago. When I still had hair and my children were all in the divisions in Sabbath school. That everything and everyone is driven by some purpose. You think about your life. Something motivates you. Fear may, may be your motivation. Fear is a huge motivation for people. We, we're afraid of something bad happening, so we're motivated to prevent that. We don't go out in public. Why? Because we're afraid of what will happen. We save all of our nickels. Why? Because we're afraid of not having money. We pack our refrigerator with extra food. Why? Because we're afraid of running out of food. We have too much food at every meal. Why? Because we're afraid there won't be enough. Fear is a huge motivator for people. Some people in some organizations are motivated by fear. Some are motivated by money. Some are motivated by buildings. You see the most beautiful buildings in some places and you think, well, I wonder what they do there. I don't know, but the building's cool. Churches can be motivated by fear, can be motivated by money, can be motivated by numbers, can be motivated by a lot of things. But there are five things the Bible says we're to be motivated by. Five things we're supposed to be doing. We'll cover them again here in a minute. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism. Those are the five calls on the church in the Bible. That's the five things the church is supposed to be about doing. Keeping a balance of those five is the call on every believer's life. That we are all supposed to be about those things. Worship. We were designed for worship. Do you realize that's the only real activity we ever see in heaven? You don't see anybody mowing the lawn in Scripture when it describes heaven. Right? You don't see anybody doing anything about planting anything. Right? When Adam and Eve were given the garden, they were given the garden to maintain. We don't know how they were doing it. We don't know. Craftsman wasn't there yet. Sears hadn't built a store yet. Maybe they just got together the right bugs on the right plant when it was time to trim. Okay, you guys over here, cut some of this. Move these caterpillars over there. They need to eat and this needs to be cut. I don't know. But worship is the one thing we see over and over again when the windows of heaven are opened for us. Some vision is, is opened and we see heaven open and it is a worshipful activity over and over and over again. The people who follow after God find themselves in worship. Fellowship. We were designed to be in connection. Isolation is not the normal human state. That's why when we punish prisoners, we put them in isolation. Right? The worst punishment you can give, other than some kind of corporal punishment in a prison, is isolation. Isolation is not the way we were meant to live. We were meant to live in fellowship. That's why you were born into a family. That's why you didn't just appear on the dirt somewhere. Because you needed fellowship from the beginning. Discipleship. We are all designed to be followers of Christ. We are designed to be replications of Christ. That his character would be reproduced in us. That his attitude would be reproduced in us. That his ways would be reproduced in us. That people would be touched by us and feel like they were touched by him. 
ministry. We were designed to look at opportunities to meet the needs of other people. Designed to. And when we ignore that design, we feel guilt, right? And people prey on that guilt. We know people hold up signs and say, I will, I'll work for food. And we feel guilty if they, you know, you look at the guy and he's, you know, he's clearly not in need. And you're still like, well, I still feel bad about not helping him. Right? Because we were designed to find ways to meet the needs of others, to bless other people, to see and act on the felt needs of other people. It's just a design element. It's who we are. As a believer and as a follower of Christ, we are called and designed to share good news. Now, we always talk about this within the context of church, but think about it in the context of the rest of your life. When something good happens to you, do you share it? You find an awesome new restaurant. Do you share that? Yeah, yeah. When you, find, when you get a, a new car and you're really excited about it, you've done the research, you've got the car, and you're really excited about it, do you share that? Yeah, when you go to some fun place, what is Facebook if it's not just people sharing cool things that they're enjoying doing, right? That's evangelism, that's outreach. But if you believe that abundance is given to the follower of Jesus, then the natural consequence of that is to share it with somebody. The norms of the church are those five things. The norms of the believer are those five things. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, evangelism, ministry. Those are our five callings as believers. I didn't make them up. They are from Scripture. They are biblical callings. Number four, the local church is the hope of the world. It's not politics. It's not politicians. I don't, I don't want to discourage you from voting. Keep voting. We really need to find good people to put in office. They get to control a lot of stuff. But ultimately, it is the local church that makes the impact on the world. When, when people are starting to finally wise up to the fact that governments are corrupt and, they wa- and wasteful, you know what they're doing all over the world to try to reach people who need? They're bypassing the governments and going to the churches. All over the world. All over the world, denominationally and non-denominationally, people are saying, hey, you know how we reach the needs of people? We touch the churches. We reach the individuals in the churches. They're already concerned about their neighborhood. So if we give them money to help feed the hungry, the the hungry get fed. If we give them medicine for people who are ill, they get the medicine. And so the people are bypassing governments all over the world because it is, in fact, true that the local church is the hope of the world. Eternity is not sold in a restaurant. It's not given out in some, in some factory or built in some factory. It's not paid for in some store. It is, in fact, only located in one place that is in the hand of the believer who is a part of the local church following Jesus. The local church is the hope of the world. Their only eternal hope and most of the hope of their temporal needs. Local church. So those are just a couple of the things we say around here. Those are some of the foundational ideas we share. Now, I want to give you one more, and that is, um, and I, I, I'm gonna, I have to scold Pastor Greg even in his absence. He gave away Mickey's hand, but we used to have Mickey's hand. So imagine a big white glove, about three times that size. Okay? How do you turn down a little kid who wants Mickey's hand, by the way? I scold him, but I understand. We don't believe that there's a measuring up to get into God's family. You know, Disneyland doesn't do it anymore, but they used to have these little things, and it was always Mickey, and Mickey had his hand up. And you couldn't get on the ride unless you measured up to Mickey's hand. Some of you are old enough to remember, right? Now they just have a little stake in the ground with a mark, and that's, that's the measurement, because I guess they didn't want to make Mickey the bad guy anymore. 
But we don't believe that the church has a measuring stick for entrance. There is no Mickey's hand in the church. There is no measuring stick. You come as you are, you come with what you got. And God meets you there. And as a church, we believe that it is our responsibility to be open to that. Now, folks, you, those of you who are regulars here, you've got to know that that's messier. It's much messier than checking people's ties at the door. It's much messier than making sure that everybody measures up before they come in. Because when we get involved with people's lives, it's messy. And when you stop measuring them before they come in, messy people come in. And you know what you find? They just join the mess of people who are already here because everybody's messy. Everybody's messy. Heard a pastor say this week that, you know, he hears from people saying, oh, you know, I can't go to church. They're full of hypocrites. He gave the best answer I've ever heard to that question. He said, I turned to the person and I said, oh, no, 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 there's room for one more. That's kind of a wise guy answer, but I like it. It's true. The church is full of broken people. That's the reason we come. That's what the church is all about. We are about brokenness. We're about finding a way to answer brokenness. We're about trying to answer the call of God to meet people and touch lives and love people on his behalf. So what is a grace point? That's the name we've taken. What is a grace point? The moment the prodigal son realizes his father has fully accepted him back and his, as a son, not as a servant, then wraps his arms around him and walks him home, it's a grace point. It's a grace point. It's the, the father running out to meet the son. It's forgiveness. It's embracing somebody who's, who's messed you up. It's embracing the person who walks in, and when they walk into the room, you kind of get a little clinch factor. You kind of go, oh, man, I wish she, he wasn't there. There's a, fo- <coughs> a football commercial that's been out. <coughs> it was played during some of the college football games. And there's a couch. And sitting on this couch is Bo Jackson. This won't mean anything to you if you're not an NFL fan. Those of you who do, good. Those of you who don't, ask somebody. They'll tell you. Sitting on the couch is Bo Jackson. Sitting next to him is uh, a Dallas Cowboy who remained nameless. Sitting next to him is Jerry Rice. Sitting next to him is Steve Young. And they're watching TV. And they're watching a football game. And as they're watching this football game, in walks Joe Montana. And Steve Young turns to Bo Jackson. Apparently it's Bo's house. He's got the remote. And he says, I didn't know he was coming. And Bo says, he's Joe Montana. He's got kind of an open invitation. I hope things won't get weird with the two of you. And then you see Steve step up or stand up and he and Joe try to shake hands and it, they just can't seem to get in the right rhythm. And uh, it just it's really awkward. Sometimes a person walks into the room and they just make you feel awkward. You got unfinished business with them. Well, first of all, we should finish the business. But a grace point is where we find a way to embrace the person who makes us feel uncomfortable. He wraps, around his arm, wraps his arms around him and walks him on home. It's the moment that the believer truly understands what grace really means and that it's personal. It's the moment that a, a believer gets it. When we finally realize grace is real and it's for me. When we realize that there is no measuring up for God. 
There is simply his family who is willing to come home. That's it. He's calling us home. He's inviting us home. He's trying to get us into heaven. He's trying to get us home. And yes, we're messing it up. And yes, we're a a complete waste of his time. And yes, we're a bunch of hypocrites. And yes, he knows all of those things. He knows our best day and how ugly that is. And he knows our worst day when he starts with us. And he takes us in anyway. When we realize that grace is personal and it's real and it's really for me, it's transformational. When that happens, something changes. People often talk about it going from their head to their heart. It moves you. It touches you. It changes the way you see the world. A grace point. It's that point when the struggling non-believer cries out for help from a God that he hopes exists. And dares to believe that he might be listening God meets you where you are. I think I shared this statistic with you. Gallup did a poll of atheists and it said 60% of atheists pray. I actually don't know what to say about that. I'm rarely lost for words. But I can say this. God meets them there. If you are reaching out to God in desperation, he's there. If you're reaching out out to God out of the fullness of your heart and worship, he's there. And the only thing that, that matters is that you're reaching out to God, that you're finally turning around and heading home. That you're making the turn. And you maybe have to make it day after day after day. Paul said, I die daily. So he found himself wandering off the path day after day after day. And he kept having to remind himself to get back on the path. That's all of us, isn't it? A grace point is the moment that... The love of Christ washes over you and you feel it. You feel it. It's like that warm summer rain. It's refreshing and it's new and it's embracing and it's covering you all over. It's that moment when you finally feel loved. That's a grace point. That's what a grace point is. It is the point in our spiritual journey that we come back to every time we meditate on the significance of the amazing love of God and the gift that is the cross. That's a grace point. That's what a grace point is. Grace point church. However, is you. Grace Point Church. There's a lot of high ideals and, and, and thoughts and, and, and concepts, but ultimately, Grace Point Church is you. I've tried to figure out ways to illustrate this, and this is the only one I can come up with. Hopefully, it works. Gene, would you turn off all the lights? You have to listen for instructions now. Get out your phone first. If you've stuck it in your pocket and you're going to not be able to find it in the dark, get it out. You can turn my, these up here off too. I can do this with my eyes closed, I think, I hope. All of them. The, the side lights, too. Get the side lights. I guess i got to turn this one off. All right. If you're 16 or under, you probably already know this. Find the flashlight on your phone. Turn it on. 16 or under, just 16 and under. 
The other question I have for you if you're 16 and under is, how are you paying for this phone? <laughs> and just turn it up. I don't want to see, this isn't a concert, don't do that, just put it up. If you're 17 to 25, turn on your phone, flashlight, and point it up. Just point it up, just, just like this. You know, you don't, not this, this. If you're 25 to 55, get some help from your kids and find the flashlight on your phone and turn it on. <laughs> if you're above 55, if you can find the flashlight on your phone, turn it on. I'm in this group. If you brought your phone, turn it on. Somebody asked if you remember where you found your, where you left your phone. I'm starting to feel bad because I have the, all the problems people have just mentioned. What I want you to recognize is that the light of the world is not a stadium beacon. It's millions, in fact. According to the latest polls, it's one billion little lights. The grace that the world needs is yours. The grace that impacts the world around you is yours. I can see every one of your faces, and it's, it's not just because it looks like this. But because your neighbor has a light on, you have a light on, someone else has a light on. And it's lighting the room. And that's how the world becomes a light with the grace of God. You can turn off your light. Gene, if you'll get the house lights back on. Although it seems like the wrong thing to do. It'll just kill your battery. Ultimately, there are lots of things that we can describe as those moments of grace, but it is the church that is ultimately the point of contact for a person in the world with grace. It is the church and the believer who has been touched by Jesus who can look at another person and say, I can't really explain this, but it works. I can't really explain it, but it works. It, 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 it happens. It, I gave my heart to Jesus and something changed. I decided to turn from the way I was going and follow him and things have gotten better. I've given over myself to him and let him be the leader. I've surrendered to him and things have gotten better. It's the believer who experiences Jesus, who gives himself over to Jesus, who turns to somebody else and says, I think I can show you the way to find an answer to that. It's in Jesus and this is how it works. The church has been guilty of standing on a hillside and shouting directions into the valley. And that's not what the church was for. We were called to go and make disciples. We were called to go forward in activity with others. What is our mission as a church? Meeting people where they are and helping them grow in Christ. Would you take where they are and hold that in your heart? Where they are. Where they are physically, 
emotionally, mentally, where they are culturally, where they are in their own lifestyle choices, where they are in the, in the life they're leading, where they are. Meet people where they are. Now, to meet a person where they are as a believer and leave them there is malpractice. Honestly, that's what it is. To meet a person who is in need and be unwilling to help with that need is malpractice. And those needs take all sorts of forms. And each of us are different, and some of us are called to different kinds of things in the way we go about meeting that need. But to not meet a person's need that you stumble upon is malpractice. It's the call of God for all of us to be in the practice of touching lives. The grace point, that point of connection between the grace of God and somebody who, who is looking for him. That point of connection between the authority and power and transformation of God in a person's life and the person who needs it and wants it and is looking for it. Now, if you try to, try to stick an electrical cord in the life of somebody who's not looking for it, you're just going to shock them and make them mad. Don't do that. But when you find somebody who needs it and is open to you speaking into their life, speak into their life. To not do so is malpractice. We are called to meet people where they are and help them grow in Christ. Go therefore, Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go. Do you know this go, this, this word go here? It actually means as you go. If you were to translate this more accurately in the text, it should say, as you go. So as you're going about your business, as you're going about your life, as you're doing your thing, go. As you're going along, pay attention. Make disciples along the way. So this is certainly a call to go somewhere else. To go into foreign missions. To go in a short-term mission project. To go get involved in something that is not in your normal path of life. But it's also a call to simply be about God's business as you go. As you run your business, be about God's business. As you go to work, be about God's business. As you drive down the freeway, and this one kills me every time because I just need to be better about this. As you go down the freeway, be about God's business. When you get it right, get a fish sticker, not before. (laughs) Bad advertising. And you know if you're good or bad advertising already, right? If you're going to put a grace point sticker on your church, get this piece right first. As you go about your daily life, as you go about the ministry of just being, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that I have taught you. Notice it's all that I have taught you. The things that are are clear to you, that are commanded to you, that that you understand in your own life, share with somebody else. Share what you have. We're all afraid of not being able to share what we don't have. Well, we don't have it. Can't share it. Share what you do have. If you're a new believer, if you've been walking with Jesus for a week, you've got a week full of experiences to share. If you're a, a lifelong believer, you've got 40 years of, of walking with Jesus, you've got a ton of things to share. As you mature, as your life changes, as things are different for you, you bring those things to the table. Not before. Lots of people are afraid that to witness because they can't, they can't teach all the doctrines. Most of my friends are preachers. Most of them couldn't teach all the doctrines off the top of their head. Most all of them need notes. Most all of us 
teach what is real and powerful and experiential for you. As you go about your business, go about his business. We worship, we fellowship, we make disciples of ourselves and of others. We minister to others as we see the needs. And we reach out to those who have yet to find their way home. That's what we do. That's what we're about. We are about courageous hope. Hope, we're all aware of, right? I hope the Raiders can get to 8-8 eight to eight, eight eight this year. I hope they beat Kansas City. Hey, better chance than we've had in a long time. I hope they stay in L.A. or in Oakland. I moved to L.A. I'm going to have to find somebody else to root for. Courageous hope. Is hope out of your reach. Is hope beyond your imagination. Courageous hope is the kind of hope that takes risks. The kind of hope that says this is too big for us. But because I believe in a God who does things that are too big for me, I'm willing to step into it and embrace it and accept it as what God is calling me to do. I want to challenge you in 2016 to do what's on that pillar. Have courageous hope. To hope beyond yourself. To hope beyond what you can imagine. To do things with God, for God, that stretch you. Because in that stretch, you will find the hope and faith that it follows Jesus growing. Abundant life. John chapter 10, verse 10, second half. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We need to stop living our lives as if there's not enough. We've got to stop living our lives as if we're running out of stuff. We are, we are bent on this mentality of there not being enough of things to go around. And when we do that, we get tight. We get nervous. We get unfriendly. We get fearful. And we hoard things. And we don't share things. We are called to understand that God is abundant. And we're living a life that is abundant as God sees abundance and as God delivers abundance. We are called to understand that God has enough love, enough grace, enough of everything that is necessary for everyone on the planet. And that includes me, and that includes you. That God is a God of abundance, not scarcity. It's easy for us to fall back into the sinful mindset of scarcity, but we are called to abundance to understand a God of abundance. To be abundant with people around it, to be abundant with our children, to be abundant with ourselves. To understand abundance, go to Leatherby's or to the regular hot fudge Sunday. Do it tonight. Bring a friend. You might need help. I don't usually get questions. What? Go to a Leatherby's and order a hot fudge Sunday. I have said that enough, Ramona, that you should know. Encountering, hello, back row. Encountering grace. Encounter, you thought these things were just nice words on the, on the pillars, right? We actually mean these things. Encountering grace. Grace that touches another person's life. Grace that is impactful in the lives of people around you. Not just you accepting it, it's you delivering it. Grace is great for me, 
But if grace is only something I take for myself, I'm not doing anything. If grace is something that I have been given so that I might give, then I'm a conduit directly from the world, from, the, from God to the world. And that's what I'm called to be, to be encountering it and to bring it into an encounter with other people. To be the kind of person who when people meet us, they recognize us as a person of grace. A person who will accept and love and care about them. No matter where we find ourselves. And no matter where they are. If we're going to meet people where we are, we better take grace with us. Because we're going to find people who disagree with us. We're going to find people who don't like us. and We're going to find people who are completely on a different page from us. Nice to have you here. On the back wall it says, acceptance and belonging, following Jesus and trusting God. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a church like that? Where acceptance is normal and where you can belong and connect and be cared about and love and be loved. Isn't that the goal for church? Isn't that what God has called us to Aren't those the, the ideals of Christianity? Aren't those the ideals of the New Testament? Unconditional love. That's a small phrase with a huge impact. That's the kind of love that God has. It's agape. It's love without condition. It's love no matter what you're looking at or who you're looking at. This is not boundaryless. I know we, we, we've talked about this and I try to bring it out every once in a while. We deal with people who are hateful and mean and should be kept away from your family. And they, there should be a boundary between certain people and you. But that does not mean that you have the right to be compassionless, prayerless, angry, and mean to that person. You can maintain a distance without being angry or mean. You can maintain an appropriate distance of protection between your, your family and, and somebody who will harm them without being prayerless. Faithless, mean, angry people toward them. We are called to love without condition. Without condition. Because that's who Jesus is. I loved you when you were my enemy. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Unconditional. Not boundaryless, but not faithless either. Authentic living. Wouldn't it be nice if we all looked like Jesus? Wouldn't it be nice if people got it when they saw you and I? They didn't have to be taught or told. They didn't have to, they didn't have, to have somebody say, well, you know, we're all kind of a mess. And we are all kind of a mess. But to live authentically... We don't do it well. We're always messing it up. I'm constantly messing it up. But in every day of our lives to strive for authenticity, to strive to actually be what we say we are, to strive to try to be the kind of people God has called us to be, to be authentic in who we are and what we do, to have our, our, have our life match our words. Accessible faith. I love this one because it means the good things of God are in the reach of everyone. 
It means we don't hold back anything of the goodness and the good things of God. That instead, we try to make it as accessible as possible. Whether that be in the way we do church, whether that be in the way we walk, the way we live, what we do, how we act. We put the good, best things of God on the most accessible shelf. When I was a little kid, at my grandmother's house, and I lived with my grandmother from the time I was three till I was nine. Lived in my grandmother's house. My grandmother was the typical grandmother. You put the candy and the cookies up where the kids can't reach them. And I was the typical kid. Well, maybe I was a little atypical. It was my mission to find a way to accept, access those things. My, uh, I have an uncle who's the same age that I am. My little uncle Ralph and I, we had, uh, they were kind of stools, but they were utilitarian. They had pull-out steps, so you could pull out the step and climb up on top of the stool. They were, they used, a lot of old households had these because you had shelves that grandma couldn't reach either. And so we each had one. His was red and white, and mine was kind of a copper gold color. If I took that thing, it was metal. I was a little guy. I probably was never that little, but it would probably weigh about 20 pounds, and I could drag it across the floor. I could get it over, and I can remember the house. The house had bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, washroom, where the washer with the ringer was, that way. Dining room was kind of behind us. It was in this long, narrow room. Christmas tree always sat there. And then there was a living room and another bedroom back there. In that dining room area on this side, my grandmother had a certain set of things. She had a six-legged table, which was the coolest thing you ever saw. And then she had these these other little things, and then there there were some shelves. And as I recall, the shelves were about three-quarters of the way down. But if I dragged that thing from the table, which where I sat, dragged it over, pulled out the step, I could get to those shelves. I understand why my grandmother put the cookies up there. Because I didn't have a stop sign for cookies. But why does the church do that? Why would the church make the things of God inaccessible? Why would we want to set up any kind of barrier to somebody reaching the good things of God? It's 2016. Lays out an opportunity for us. As each new year does. To do this better than we did it last year. To do this better than we did it last year. You know, these are all kind of things that we can say, oh, this is the church's business, but they're really not the church's business. They're our business. Because Grace Point is you. Grace Point is me. The government had this program a, a decade ago called A Thousand Points of Light. Great idea, great concept, great thought. Thank you. Find someone who has a need and meet that need. 
thousand points of light, the idea was that the government can't be this beacon in one place that reaches people. There had to be lots of other people who were out there doing things. That's what the church has always been about. Basic theology of Christianity. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Basic theology of Christianity. So 2016, I want to challenge you to be about worship and fellowship and making a disciple and being a disciple. About ministering to those who are brought across your path with need. I want to stop on this one because everybody gets caught up in missions and the homeless and the hungry. And you may be called to do any and all of those. But it may just be your neighbor needing some butter. It may just be mowing somebody's lawn. It may just be smiling, shaking somebody's hand, giving someone a hug, touching the lives of a child. I just have been reading a book that's full of all kinds of studies. I've been reading it for months now. I'm reading some more of it this week. One of the things that we're talking about was young people, that a kid, 15 to 18, needs about six adults from the church in their life to stay in the church. Think about that. It means for you, if you're a mom and a dad, you need to introduce your kid to other people in the church. Just start helping them meet people until they click with somebody. But to stay in the church, a kid needs about six, seven adults who just care about them. And you know what's funny about that? Is that we know statistically from a brand new believer coming into the church, if you're four, five, fifty, or fifty-five, when you come into the church, you need about half a dozen people that you know on a first-name basis in a church. We're built to be in connection with each other. And it may be your ministry in the next year to connect people. I know that there are Grace Point groups. In, within this body, there are subgroups of all sorts. Bible study groups, the bigger Grace Point groups, one, two, three, nineteen. I don't know how many there are. Three, four now? Four? I need a bigger nod one way or the other. Two, three, three. Thank you. Places where you can connect. A ministry you can do to connect someone else. I don't know what God wants you to do this year. But I know he wants you to touch somebody else's life. To see a need and meet a need. To be involved in the ministry ministry to someone else. And the last one is reaching out to the lost. Live a life that allows another person to trust you so that when they have a question, they might ask you. Be authentic enough, loving enough, that another person trusts you so that when they have a question, they might ask you. Because ultimately, making that ripple across the world begins with loving somebody and caring about them and letting the questions come from them. Doctrine need not be mentioned unless questioned. But love is appropriate all the time. Grace is appropriate all the time. Faith, authenticity are appropriate all the time. Grace Point Church has some plans and some thoughts and some ideas about how things work. But ultimately... Your Grace Point Church. So what happens? 
up to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your call in our life today. Some of us need to offer a ministry of forgiveness to someone. Some of us need to offer a ministry of a difficult conversation to someone. Someone needs to hand out a caring package of their time or food or investment. Someone needs to love and care about someone who's far from you. Someone needs to find their way to you. Whatever you are challenging us to do or be today, we surrender ourselves to that leadership, to your leadership. Help us to open the word and see you and meet you and understand you. To fall on our knees and recognize that this is our only avenue of communication with you. All of us need your power and your authority and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.